Welcome back to Air Quality Matters. This is my conversation with Ben Jones, part two. If I could just turn it to you a little bit uh, to start with, how did you even end up in this field of air quality and engineering and the built environment? What was your pathway to being here? And, and what are you guys doing at Nottingham now, day to day from a work perspective? What, what are you currently looking at and working on? So I ended up here by accident. <laughs> it's a happy accident, though. I'm, a, I'm an aeronautical engineer by training, and I, I spent five years in practice working for, for British Aerospace. Um, but after after five years, I was a senior software engineer for them. But um, after crunching code for five years, I realized that that was not something I wanted to do for the rest of my career and found a doctorate with um, Ray Kirby and Maria Colacatroni at Brunel, which enabled me to work in industry and do research for industry uh, uh, while also studying sustainable development, which was brilliant. So I ended up with uh, a company in High Wycombe Monodraft, uh, who I still have great links with. We worked out how their natural ventilation systems were, were performing in, in schools. So that was the, the Labour uh, Schools for the Future program that was going on back then. Heavy investment in natural ventilation. Two years then at UCL, where they changed my perspective from looking at technologies to the bigger picture stuff. And of course, at UCL, uh, if you go into the main building, you find Jeremy Bentham uh, in a in a box in the corner. And Jeremy Bentham was the guy who came up. So his preserved body is there, believe it or not. He was the guy who, who came up with the phrase approximately having the greatest effect on the, the greatest uh, number of people. And I would add for the least number of dollars, sort of utilitarianism. And uh, we were looking at stocks of homes and what happens when you decarbonize them. And uh, what the unintended con- the unintended health consequences, and we were using the quali at the time. And one of the things we were looking at was was radon, uh, because as you tighten, improve air tightness in radon affected areas, and you don't provide concurrent ventilation, you end up with what were previously medium risk homes becoming uh, high risk homes, and high risk homes becoming really really dangerous homes. Um, so we were trying to quantify that. Um, I, I then moved to Nottingham in 2013. I've been here for 10 years. And when you first arrive in an academic post, you're desperately trying to set yourself up. But I took Matt's, Max's plot, my favourite nerdy plot, and realised that I should be looking at particulate matter in homes. And I managed to get hold of a couple of sensors, but uh, through some small budget wins, uh, project wins and um, started looking at emissions from cooking in student kitchens. And I had one student measure emissions from 150 pieces of toast. Hasten to add, she never wants to eat toast ever again. But um, (laughs) that work was was instructive because it told me there was huge variation in what we were witnessing. And then we went to work with TNO. Uh, with Walter Bosboom and um, his colleagues at TNO in the Netherlands, and we started to cook uh, dinners again and again in the same way. And we, we observed consistent patterns, but uncertainty in the emission rates. 
And the reason we were interested in the emission rates is because uh, you generally want to model what's going on in the building. It's very time consuming, um, expensive, uh, and intrusive to go into people's homes and measure stuff. Um, so we wanted to model what might be going on at, at stock level. And so we needed good data to go in there. And we needed data where we could uh, quantify the variation uh, that we were seeing in numbers. So that's that's how we got into it, really. And um, later, more funding became available to start looking at the harm from this rather than just comparing against World Health Organization threshold values that we always knew to be a problem. So that now we're in a process of trying to say, well, if we install a cooker hood in every home, what might be the, the effect on, on population health in, say, London or in the entire UK? Just goes and to that, show good science. It just goes to show good science doesn't operate in a vacuum that when we're talking about particulate matter from cooking, there's often a lot of work that's gone in into try and understanding what the emission rates of certain activities in those kitchens are so that we can model outcomes more accurately and i you 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 started to pick up the moniker of mr burnt toast there for a while (laughs) i think through some of your studies and i've tried to explain to people that you read the papers of some of these studies that looking at something that seems very singular in approach of what is the emission rate of frying bacon or burning toast and and there's great descriptions in the papers of trying to have a repeatable method for turning bacon over and and measuring the particulate matter but that's the kind of science you have to go through for a number to appear in a formula i guess that you can stand over and have some level of confidence that a combination of cooking breakfast and cooking lunch and using the oven and frying gives you these types of emission rates that's the kind of the legwork that has to go in behind those numbers yeah yeah so yeah. I had a completely different question, which was a population question. I had a model to do that and then didn't have the data. So I've got to get the data. And and that's that's where it took me. I'd rather, personally, I'm more interested in, in models and statistics and playing around with, with code, you know, back to my British aerospace days. Because measuring stuff is so hard. So many confounding issues to it. Um, so, but, but nevertheless, that's what we did. And what 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 are the kind of things you're doing at the moment? Um, where's the where's your focus? I mean, obviously, I imagine this harm work has been a real area of focus for you and your team now for a while. Uh, are you kind of nosing around in other directions yet? Is there there other stuff that's kind of pushing your buttons? <laughs> yeah, so I, I think I think we're now trying to evangelise and trying trying to see if people think there are problems with this method. The problems with our approach and uh, we we get asked the same questions wherever we go so we're getting very good at answering them and we've covered a lot of them today and so we're now just trying to work out what what are the barriers to actually getting this into regulation um how can we how can we persuade um different regulators to to do something about it so we we've already got a draft addendum to ashray 62.2 which is very exciting but it doesn't necessarily mean it will be accepted we've still got a lot of work to do to do there um <clears throat> alongside i mean curiously enough you know uh, the beginning of the pandemic uh, uh, uh when 
it became evident that there was some form of airborne transmission of, of SARS-CoV-2, um, I suddenly thought, well, you know, it's contained in aerosols. My toast emissions behave in a very similar way to these these uh, these aerosols. There are a couple of other things that change quite notably, but um, the essential physics in a space doesn't change very much. And um, there was a, a terrific research project run by Malcolm Cook at Loughborough called Airbods, and uh, invite everybody to go and have a look at airbods.org to see the outputs from that project. And I, I got to work with, with Chris Iden, who I've known for a very, very long time. And if there was ever a skill set ready for a pandemic, it was Chris's skill set. So Chris um, has a PhD in biochemistry. He then worked for 10, 15 years in the ventilation industry. Um, uh, so he's got all this knowledge of, of viruses, which is what his PhD was on, and he did a postdoc too on them. <laughs> and he knows how ventilation systems work in buildings. And we, we started to get together to, to look at some risk models which um, were incorporated in a few SAGE documents. They, they were the foundation of much of the SIPSI um, uh, advice and guidance given during the pandemic and have recently underpinned the development of uh, ASHRAE Standard 241, Control of Infectious Aerosols, which is the first standard of its kind, I believe. That's really interesting, Ben, because um, it was something I wanted to ask you about. I mean, people have to, I guess, try and cast their minds back. What now? Are we two and a half, three years, even um, yeah. where we started to understand that this thing was a serious risk. We wanted to develop tools to understand how much of a risk this was and what mitigation we could put in place to reduce that to a certain level and hey presto up pops the maths you know we have to start running models and uh, scenarios to figure out well what happens if one person's infectious versus three what happens if the ventilation yeah. rate is x versus y you know what what's the what the impact does the size of a room have They're all of these questions that people are never logically want to ask Mm-hmm. need to be run through various scenarios so, so there you start to get into things like relative risk which is an, an area i know you've spent quite a bit of time working in and I, my apologies if i completely butcher uh, <laughs> something i remember you saying but it was something along the lines of uh having done a lot of that work uh that you could say with a hundred percent certainty that the chances of getting COVID right in a model was somewhere between zero and a hundred percent. Um I don't know if I got that quite right, but I, I think the, the 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 overwhelming output from that is is that there's so many variables, there's so many so much relative risk and and um uncertainties in the real world. How, how do you start to model that? So my question to you is, A, taking us back to that, what was driving some of those questions? And when we work in the real world and a world of uncertainties, how do we practically handle that from a scientific perspective or an engineering perspective? How does that translate into outputs like 241, for example? Okay. There's a lot to unpick there. I know. That's a big um, question. Apologies. So- so one of the things I was hinting at when we were talking about the, the emission rates from toast and um, plates of dinner that we were doing was that um, you don't get the same answer every single time. Um, 
it's what we call uncertainty in it. And if you think about this, you know, with your own body, how tall are you, Simon? Oh, I'm six, know, for, I'm six for eight, Ben. You know that. No. <laughs> about 5'11". Right, yeah. yeah. Why aren't you in basketball? That's, yeah. Uh, I, so I'm, I'm 186 centimetres. The average person in the UK, average male person in the UK is 100 and 176 centimetres. My heights measure between 150 and 2 metres, 98% of the time. So uh, most people are sort of have a height around 176. That's where the most common height is, but it spreads. And it's the same with every single parameter you can think of. You might have um, a statistic that represents it. And for data where the spread is symmetrical about the central point, um, that's a mean. But for most things in the built environment, they're, they're, they're best, represented, best represented by a median or geometric mean, um, which if the, there are, never mind, I'm not going to go into that right now. But, but, but this spread in, in the possible values is something that is really important to understand because some of the time uh, a value could be below average, and some of the time it could be above average. And, you know, if we sized, for example, heating systems in a building using an average uh, temperature outdoors, you're never gonna you're never gonna have a heating system that's big enough to handle most of the cold days, uh, so you tend to work with extreme values, right, so at the very cold end of the spectrum. Whereas when you size a chiller, you're working at the very warm end of the spectrum. So you need to understand that spread of information, and that I think that most people will understand that um, uh, in their in their professional lives, and they'll certainly know that. If I was to ask them whether they were short or tall, because they would know relative to most people whether their eyes are looking up or their eyes are looking down. So that's you, you may have um, an absolute value, which is represented by the mean and the spread of the mean. But your relative value then is uh, how you compare against some threshold. And that's generally um, in height, what other people's heights are. So at the beginning of the pandemic, the very long roundabout way of trying to your, starting to answer your question, um, we started to look. Um, we we needed a model that would say how much virus is somebody emitting into a, the air, how much might somebody be who was susceptible to infection uh, be inhaling, and uh, therefore what was the probability that they then might uh, become infected. And um, there is a very well-known equation called the Wells-Riley equation, which was uh, developed using measles and tuberculosis outbreaks, um, where much of the information that we needed just didn't exist for SARS-CoV-2. wasn't there. So we were having to uh, artificially create numbers, and it wasn't giving us anything that was particularly meaningful. So what we did was, is um, we were able to take a relative metric, which is where you, you divide, you take uh, your numbers for a scenario and you divide it relative to a baseline scenario. And all the numbers that we didn't know dropped out of the equation, they canceled. So we're then left with a, an equation that's quite precise, but um, inaccurate. But it's, it's going to give you something that's more plausible than just guessing at numbers. 
and this is where you get down to the practicalities of uncertainty because you said two things there that seem contradictory so uh if you imagine shooting bows and arrows at a target if you get to close to the bullseye then you're accurate um if your spread of arrows is right around that bullseye then you're also precise now you could have a perfect spread of your arrows around the bullseye but they might be not very close they might be you know far out so then you're um precise but inaccurate sorry gotcha wrong way around <laughs> you're imprecise but accurate yeah so um uh, what we've done is is we the the, the Precision, then, is an indicator of the spread of the data. So your imprecise is a huge spread in your data. So what we're doing is reducing that spread, but we still don't know how close to the bullseye we are. So what we were able to do is to say, well, if you increase your ventilation rate by a number of folds, your percentage reduction in infection risk would decrease by a number of percent. But if you've got very little virus in the space to begin with, a reduction is... Uh, you know, a, a small, a, a large reduction of a small number is a small number. Similarly, um, a reduction of a large number uh, may not make much of a difference either. So you never quite have a handle on on just what you're doing, but you can have a percentage reduction. Yeah, and ultimately, I guess for the layman, the the hunger for certainty is unrealistic because in in a in a real environment you can apply a, a good formula to something but if you don't know how many infectious people are in that room at that precise moment how many people are vulnerable at that precise moment where they're located at that precise moment there's all these uncertainties baked into the real world so it, it's it's quite hard for lay people like ourselves to understand how you translate formulas and, and maths like that into something that's useful in a practical right. way so, so so to us uh, so a model should only be as complicated as it needs to be but because of the uncertainties it meant that we we automatically rejected the use of of cfd for example which would give you a very discretized understanding of a space but you know if you don't know where the infected person is as you, as, as you said if you don't know where your furniture is located if you don't know where the air is coming in or going out and we try and generalize we want to try and generalize things um, we, we ended up with a with a well mixed model, which is which is used to relate carbon dioxide concentrations to ventilation rates. For example, it's the same idea, but with with some tweaks to to account for for the for the aerosols, and um, that means that uh, we we argued then that it could be generalized to all spaces because the only mixing conditions that you could say occurred in any space is the well mixed space it's the only one condition excuse me <coughs> the only one condition that that could be generalized to to any every space in existence doesn't matter what it is you you can you can say that and of course that that uh, there were lots of videos coming out about people coughing uh, that were around at the time and people walking past each other and interactions and of course if somebody just gets up and walks across the other side of the room then they throw up all sorts of turbulence around the room and it tends to the well-mixed solution anyway so better to have a simple model that you have a handle on on the uncertainties than to have a complicated one where where you really didn't 
Yeah, interesting. And ultimately, that 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 work led to um, you folk being involved in the development of the two four one standard, didn't it? Because you you started to take some of those formulas and run them thousands upon thousands of times to come up with some of the standards we saw in two four one. Yes, yes. There was something you mentioned earlier too about um, about not knowing how many infected people were present in a space, and at, at that time we were just starting to think about that very heavily. <clears throat> and um, there have been community infection rates given by the government throughout the pandemic, so we we knew that based on those with some simple probability theory, we could start to work out whether people are present in spaces. Now, most of the models up to then had just assumed there was a single person infected in all spaces, which is you know, it's always wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for, for many of the conditions, uh, for the community infection rates in many of the spaces, the most likely number of infected people most of the time was zero. So it was only when the community infection rate went up, particularly um, above a couple of percent, that it became more likely that there was one person in the space. So. And if you have a small space, that probability of infection is is very low because there's fewer people in there. But if you've got a big space like a theater or a football stadium, then the probability of having infected people is is almost certain. Um, so how did we account for that? Well, we, we started to to account for that in our models. And I, th I think it was uh, some, some of these discussions then that we we'd started to publish and uh, Throughout the interest of, of ASHRAE, and I had to apply. You know, we weren't chosen. Um, we weren't. We didn't get a tap on the shoulder or anything. We were asked to apply, and, and I did. And there were hundreds of applicants, and, and we were selected to to participate in the modelling um, work package. And I was actually uh, vice chair to Marwa Zatari of the the, the, the modelling working group. So all those models then were, were used in various forms. To, to help underpin the uh, uh, the uh, ECA rate equivalent clean equivalent air rate. Clean That's air. right. Yeah, right. Which is important for people to understand. Generally, when we're talking about ventilation rates, we talk about a clean air rate, and that that's usually has come from the amount of outside air we bring into the built environment. So, so what is the the fresh air delivery rate, the air change rate into that space. But what 241 did, which was key, was to understand that it may not always be possible to bring that much fresh outside air in or outside air in uh, for a whole host of reasons. But there are other ways of achieving an equivalent to an air change rate. And that that's what that describes is that maybe a mix of mechanical ventilation with some fresh air delivery but some recirculated air with some form of cleaning whether it's filters or uv for example um so so i, I i'm guessing your work in 241 was trying to develop what those kind of levels would look like and i remember saying to max a couple of weeks ago that some of those levels seem quite eye-watering to us over yeah. in Europe, when you start seeing 20 litres a second plus per person, they almost seem unattainable, actually, when we look at the existing state of our built environment, the, the, the prospects of delivering 20 litres a second per person seems extraordinary. In a classroom, for example, you know, yeah. where we wouldn't get anywhere near that, typically. 
but a, a good school classroom shouldn't be sized to provide the air quality flow rate. It should be sized to provide a, a, a flow rate designed to dissipate heat gains and mitigate against exposure, uh, sorry, exposure, against uh, overheating in the summertime. So um, many of the classrooms in, in the UK that are naturally ventilated should have that capacity built into them. But of course, but of course, uh, one thing that the standard allowed was you to drop your occupancy. So if you really couldn't meet it and you couldn't get hold of air cleaning technologies to, to add to your, uh, your ECA, um, your equivalent clean air rate, then um, you could just reduce the number of people in the space. And that, yes. of course, has the effect of reducing the probability of the presence of infected people. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Um, so there, there are those kind of formulas baked into two, four, one, where you can play around with and say, okay, if I can't quite get here from a equivalent air change rate, I might just reduce the number of people so that I'm, I'm, yes. I'm able to achieve the. It allows you to can do. Yeah, yeah, that's the interest. I think that was what Max was trying to get across in our discussion. Was this? It's not two for one's job to tell you what to do. Yes. If we go back to that, though, um, Simon, back to our, our simple models, we, we were able to, to use, by the time we got to the end of, um, by the time we, we, we got to the beginning of looking at 241, we started to have an awful lot more information about, about the virus in its various forms. So we were able to get a better handle on the probability of infection. Um, so... Uh, we were starting to use too some some clinical data, which was which was particularly interesting. And um, what we were able to find is that the uncertainty in the virus emission rate is is orders of magnitude in uncertainty. And that's a we found it was at least sort of five or six. And that's like going out to measure a millimeter and coming back with a kilometer. So when you talked earlier about doing tens of thousands of, of calculations, yes, that's exactly what we did in order to try and work out what the effects of that uncertainty are. And we, we for every single scenario, we did 10,000 calculations. 10,000, it's a lot. So wow. um, we, we, had a, we had a jolly good understanding of, of what might be going on, we think. Uh, so, so back, I suppose, to my original question, which was, how do we how do we apply those lessons on managing uncertainty into the real world? There's a really good uh, Wikipedia page. I don't often recommend Wikipedia pages, <laughs> but there's one on orders of orders of approximation, and um, we're really operating at a sort of first or second best order of approximation most of the time at first order approximation, which is pretty rough that's one significant figure or two significant figures and if we we start to think like that um, we, we may be a little more skeptical of the numbers that we are producing because I, I don't think we, we can have too much faith in numbers that we reproduce um, really everything should be given to no more than two significant figures in, in many circumstances in the built environment but it's what we have to work with. That's the reality. Right. Yeah. In, indeed. But but we have to make decisions with, with honesty, with, without without saying oh, I totally believe this value because I I'm not sure I always do. 
I think it's like I said, the the the, the probability of the uh, <laughs> it was a hundred percent probability that somebody was going to be infected was between naught and a hundred percent in any space, and that, that's sometimes that's the best you can do. Yeah, indeed, uh, uh, and also we we work in a we work in an environment where people are in control of their own environments and their tolerance of risk may differ as well. So we can we can struggle with uncertainty at the calculation level or at the monitoring level or the 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 kind of numbers that we can present to people but we're also dealing with behaviors and habits and people's tolerance of risk and how we frame risk in the built environment is a really key part of that so much of that work was done during smoking and anti-smoking you know mm. i always say to people that everybody knows what a dali is they just never heard it called a dali before but mm. we all know that every cigarette costs you seven seconds of your life or something like that you know we've been using that kind of language in public health for a very long time both your work on COVID and on these harm intensities um, ultimately has got to translate to behavior change and changes in regulation and things. Um, do you see this kind of work sitting in that realm of anti-smoking and framing of these problems in a completely different way so that people can get their head around them? Because we've got to start viewing the quality of the air that we breathe in the same way that we view the water that we drink and the food that we consume. We just haven't been very good today to communicating that well. Uh, and perhaps some of this work is the start of that process. I hope so, because uh, I, I really think this is a possibility to have a really great effect on a, on a huge number of people for very, well, possibly some very small changes. Um, uh, if you, if you, let's let's take for example the the, the outcomes of of the Nottingham study and and say we accept that the particulate matter is 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 the most harmful contaminant by an order of magnitude. How can we mitigate against that using a very small change? Well, building regulations changed a year or so ago, and they were they were great in that they they uh, allowed us to. To, to, they insisted on cooker hoods in every new home and that uh, they made a very clear distinction between cooker hoods that recirculated and cooker hoods that extracted to outside, which, which is really important. You, you want one that extracts to outside. Another small change would be wherever possible, you, whenever you have a new kitchen, what about we get a cooker hood in? If you can't get a cooker hood in, what about you get a hole in the wall fan, you know, just a basic extractor fan that, that is there? And uh, that isn't something that government has to pay for. That's something that the consumer pays for. It promotes technology. It promotes um, uh, us to spend a bit more money on, on, a, on a cooker hood in our homes and hopefully use it. And if you want people to use it, then we need innovation to make the things quieter. Uh, I, I like cooking very much, but uh, I also like listening to the football um, while I cook. And... Um, I remember before I knew all this stuff, I used to uh, <laughs> I used to turn the cooker hood off because I couldn't hear the radio. Now I listen with headphones and noise cancelling headphones at that, which, which is a bit of a problem because I can't hear the food. But uh, at least I know that uh, we're a little bit safer. So the point is, you can have small changes in a lot of homes that affect a lot of people. And you will see, uh, in all probability, uh, positive health effects. 
in in decades to come and opportunities for innovation in the supply chains and marketplaces i mean i can't recall outside of perhaps um commercial cooker hoods the specifications and performance of a cooker hood being advertised in any way mm. or being sold even mm. like you say i mean most cooker hoods are absolutely dreadful from a, an acoustics perspective and a performance mm. perspective so there's huge opportunity for industry to innovate and start producing cooker hoods that are quiet and deliver good capture efficiency and turn on automatically when you start cooking and doing all of these things that would make the impact on health at a population level um very very impossible possible Mm. yeah because at the moment like you say most people apart from turning it on for a steak or something big in our kitchen the cook hood doesn't come on it sounds like a jet engine you know yeah um so yeah there's an almost room for innovation i mean on that kind of future tense to finish off ben um if you were kind of advising the next set of researchers and academics coming through um where would you be pointing them to for the next tranche of research and study i know it's a very difficult one to answer um but i'd be interested to see where you think the the areas of innovation in air quality and and ventilation are going to come in the next few years i think i think we've touched on quite a few so we've, we've touched on um, technologies needed to mitigate against exposure. For example, um, some, some building types uh, are already mechanically ventilated. Is it possible to put a filter on the flow coming in so that we filter out what's outdoors before it comes indoors, particularly the particulate matter? And that's relatively straightforward to do. What do we do in naturally ventilated buildings, particularly those that are in... Um, uh, industrial areas near big road junctions where there are vulnerable people and you know maybe children or elderly or whatever what, what do we do with those so then there's an air cleaning um, approach that, that could be thought through to to mitigate against that or is there the retrofitting of mechanical systems and maybe a, a wall mounted box that that provides what might ordinarily have been put in the roof or done centrally um I'm a big picture guy, so I'll be looking at big picture stuff. Um, I, I prefer to do that. So I'll be trying to understand the bigger picture for, for public health and how the built environment fits into that. And I think that we tend to think of the built environment in sort of very isolated space. And I, I would like to work out how it fits in with, say, transport or um, uh, other other environments so that we can... Um, understand our place in the world and then there's there's questions about what do we do for the next pandemic are we ready for that is the information that we've acquired for this pandemic suitable for other airborne uh, aerosols maybe maybe not and i think that i think that needs to be thought through um we've talked a lot about physical health we haven't even mentioned mental health yet and i not realize that's a grayer area but i think that's that's a huge uh, uh, area for, for knowledge development um, over the next few years. What does an engineer need to know about mental health and the built environment, um, the relationship between the systems, the services that we provide in buildings and, and mental health? I think that's, that's a big knowledge gap. Really good point. I think uh, it's Joseph Allen 
says that your building manager probably has more of an impact on your health than your GP over your lifetime. I think it's an interesting way to view this, that the general health and well-being of people in the built environment is going to have to change and how we view it. So I think this also brings in social sciences and behavior and communication. Um, There's a lot of work to do. So I I think it's going to be an interesting next decade or so. Ben, listen, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you as always. It's been really interesting. I think the work on harm is fascinating and it's going to be great to see what happens with that. Um, So Ben, appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me.